Hello and welcome to Genetics Unzipped, the Genetic Society podcast with me, Dr. Kat Arney. In this episode from our centenary series exploring 100 ideas in genetics, we're telling tales of sex and death and exploring the very darkest side of genetics. This podcast has been going for six months now and we'd love to know a bit more about you and your thoughts on the show. Which episodes have you enjoyed? What topics would you like us to tackle? Would you like to buy a book of our 100 ideas in genetics? Pop over to geneticsunzip.com survey to fill in our very short listener survey before the end of August and you'll be entered into a prize draw to win a signed copy of my book, Herding Hemingway's Cats. Thanks very much. Just to warn you, this episode contains discussion of and references to sexual reproduction in humans and other species. And knowing me, probably some pretty bad sex puns too. So bearing that in mind, let's get it on. Sex is everywhere. Not only do birds, bees and educated fleas do it, in the words of Noel Coward, 99% of all multicellular creatures on Earth reproduce sexually. From the hay fever-inducing pollination of plants to the mass spawning of salmon, insects, mammals, birds and pretty much everything else is getting busy, finding mates, swapping cells and making the next generation. And yes, that does include giant pandas, whose legendary lack of sex drive is probably more myth than reality. Even single-celled organisms like yeast, which normally reproduce asexually by budding, can have sex. There are two mating types in yeast, A and alpha, and when an A and an alpha get in close enough proximity, they both form an elongated shape known as a schmoo, named after the strange characters in a 1940s cartoon. Then they fuse together, mixing up their genes and then dividing back into two cells. It's not exactly sexy, but it certainly is sex. And although bacteria only reproduce by splitting in two, they can still swap bits of DNA called plasmids through a primitive kind of sex known as conjugation, where one bug sticks a little tube into another and shoves through some genes. But while we can describe all the weird and wonderful ways in which the great diversity of life makes its babies, we still don't really know why. So let's get down and dirty, in a purely biological sense of course, and find out. This question of why species have sex baffled the great evolutionary biologist Charles Darwin, who wrote, We do not even in the least know the final cause of sexuality, why new beings should be produced by the union of the two sexual elements. The whole subject is as yet hidden in darkness. However, Darwin and his wife Emma Wedgwood did manage to knock out ten kids, so at least some of the technicalities can't have been a complete mystery. Compared with asexual reproduction, quickly budding off identical versions of yourself, like yeast or bacteria, or sending out runners like strawberries, sex is a risky business. Not only do you have to find an appropriate member of your species to mate with, there can also be a significant cost. Organisms will go to a colossal amount of effort to attract a mate. Think of the huge tails of male peacocks, or the beautifully decorated boudoirs of bowerbirds, exquisitely evolved flowers, and the bright blue face and matching genital combo sported by many species of monkeys. Or the lengths that members of our own species will go to in order to attract someone to get frisky with. 
And in many species, one of the pair, usually the female, is left holding the baby, or at least investing more of her resources into her offspring, while the male contributes little to the family. One particularly notable exception is seahorses, where the female deposits all her fertilised eggs in a pouch on the male's belly and then buggers off, leaving Dad to raise all the sea kids. Bye-bye. So given all the time, trouble and effort, why bother having sex at all? It must be worth it, given that sex is still here more than two billion years after it first evolved, and most species on Earth do prefer to reproduce that way. German evolutionary biologist August Weissmann put forward one explanation in the 19th century, suggesting that sexual reproduction reshuffles the genetic deck of cards between the generations, allowing organisms to pool and divide their genetic resources and provide differences upon which evolution can act. To put it simply, sex creates variation, which is the fundamental fuel for natural selection. And for a long time, that's been one of the main accepted reasons for the evolution of sexy times. But this might be too simplistic a view. Researchers have now shown that this genetic shuffling isn't always preferable compared with asexual reproduction, and that it's easier under normal conditions not to go to the trouble of mixing your gametes with someone else. But that changes when times get tough. Under changing or challenging conditions, small populations or other stresses, it becomes advantageous to mix it up as much as possible, rolling the genetic dice with every generation in the hope that at least some of your offspring make it through to have little ones of their own. Proof of this idea comes from studies of asexually reproducing single-celled species, which will turn into sexual beings if put under enough pressure. Building on this idea there are hints that maybe even cancer cells can have sex. While researching my next book about cancer genetics and evolution, I discovered that cancer cells can fuse together under the stress of chemotherapy and produce little cells that are resistant to drugs. It's a bit like the romantic subplot of a disaster movie. What do you do when you think your world is ending? Have sex. One slightly more unusual hypothesis comes from Fred Thomas and his colleagues, who recently suggested that sex evolved as a defence against transmissible cancers, which are caused by cancer cells moving from one organism to another, right back at the very start of multicellular life. Today, contagious cancers are very rare, such as the facial tumours that affect Tasmanian devils, and none are known in humans, but they can and they do arise in nature. Mixing up the host's genome with every generation means that the offspring are more likely to be genetically distinct from any cancer cells that they pick up, giving a much better chance of spotting and destroying any foreign rogue cells before they can take root and grow into potentially lethal tumours. It's a wild idea, but I love the thought that all the joy and pain of our human sex lives, not to mention sexually transmitted diseases, might have originally started as a way of our ancient ancestors protecting themselves from catching cancer off each other a billion years ago. As well as pondering why sex evolved in the first place, the other big question is why most species come in only two genetic sexes, male and female. Males are biologically defined as the ones that make lots of small mobile gametes like sperm or pollen, while females make fewer, larger eggs or ovules. 
This doesn't necessarily correlate with chromosomes, though, as genetically female mammals have two of the same sex chromosomes, XX, while males are XY. Birds do it the other way round, with males having two W chromosomes and females being WZ. Things get even more complicated in other branches of the tree of life, with the sex of some species of reptiles being determined by the temperature at which their eggs are incubated. Insects have the largest number of different sex determination mechanisms, ranging from simple X and Y chromosomes in fruit flies to strange jumping sex genes in houseflies and many other flavours in between. Certain types of fish can even change sex during their lifetime. Clownfish, for example, will switch from male to female if there's a lack of lady fish, a fact that might make you view the film Finding Nemo in a whole new light. Hello. And while single-celled yeast have their two mating types, A and alpha, the simple slime mold Physarum polycephalum has more than 500 different options, depending on the particular combination of three genes that come in 13 possible variations. Each individual needs to find a mate with different variants of all three genes, making me wonder what kind of chaos the slime mold equivalent of Tinder might be like. So that's the evolutionary imperative and the genetic bits. But you might have noticed that there's another reason to get down to it. And that's because sex feels good. And it's not just humans that have noticed. An intriguing paper published in 2018 showed that male fruit flies appear to experience pleasure from sex. A team of Israeli researchers used genetic engineering techniques to modify nerve cells in the brains of male flies, and it caused them to ejaculate in the presence of red light. These adjusted insects kept coming back to their literal red light district, suggesting that they were enjoying the experience. Fascinatingly, the team also found that the modified flies that don't manage to get to the red light will drown their sorrows by choosing to drink alcohol if they can't get their rocks off. However, while this is a very fun story, there's also a chance that the modified nerve cells were actually firing off other pleasure systems in the flies' brains, with ejaculation being an unexpected sexy side effect. Still, I can definitely sympathise with the need to knock back a couple of stiff drinks after being turned down. So, uh, fancy a snog? Tiny mosquitoes are a big problem. Altogether, diseases caused by bacteria, viruses and parasites transmitted by mosquitoes affect nearly 700 million people every year and kill more than a million, many of them in the poorest parts of the world. Although malaria is probably the most famous, there's a cavalcade of mosquito-borne nasties including dengue, West Nile virus, chikungunya, yellow fever, various types of encephalitis and Zika, to name just a few. But while it's tempting to blame all mosquitoes for carrying diseases, and I certainly blame them for making me come back from my holidays covered in itchy bites, most of the 3,500 known species don't even bite humans at all. In fact, only around 200 species like to feed on us, but only around 100 of these carry human diseases. And even then, it's only the female insects that need our blood in order to lay their eggs. 
Many mosquito-borne diseases can't be prevented or treated effectively, and in the case of malaria, the infectious parasites are rapidly evolving resistance to every drug in our arsenal. The insects themselves are also evolving resistance to insecticides, and other control options like bed nets can't provide complete protection against mosquitoes all the time. So, can't we just get rid of them altogether? The answer may be yes, thanks to something known as super Mendelian inheritance, or, as it's more commonly called, a gene drive. Gene drive might sound more like the presenter of a cheesy TV motoring show, but it's a clever genetic engineering tool that means that one of the two copies of a particular gene will be passed on to the next generation, rather than the other. Mosquitoes have two copies of every gene, and indeed two copies of every chromosome, one that they got from mummy mosquito and the other from dad. According to the laws of Mendelian inheritance, there should be a 50-50 chance of either of those copies ending up in a single egg or sperm, which only contains one copy of each chromosome and gene, and being passed on to the next generation. But there are some strange selfish genes that influence their own inheritance. Imagine two chromosomes, one containing a selfish gene drive and one without. You'd expect there to be a 50-50 chance of a sperm or egg ending up with the chromosome containing the drive. But that's not what happens. This selfish gene encodes molecular scissors that snip a gap in the unaffected chromosome, triggering the cell to repair the damage by pasting in a new copy of the gene drive. So now both chromosomes carry it, and there's a 100% chance that every egg or sperm cell will inherit it, as will all the offspring. So, once those mosquitoes start breeding, all of their offspring will pass on the gene drive. And all of their offspring will too. And, sooner or later, virtually all the population will carry it. Clever, huh? Uh-huh. Scientists have known about naturally occurring selfish genetic elements for a long time. But the discovery of CRISPR, a gene editing system that allows researchers to alter any gene in any way, has opened up a world of possibilities. Now scientists can put any gene into mosquitoes, hooked up to a drive, and it will quickly spread through the population. And if that gene does something useful, like prevents the insects from being infected with the malaria parasite, then that's got to be a good thing. Even more clever is an approach from researchers at Imperial College in London, who used a gene drive to turn female mosquitoes infertile if they end up with two copies of it. Males can still spread the drive, whether they have one or two copies, and females with one copy will obviously pass it on to all their offspring. So, once the drive starts to spread through the population, every single insect carrying it will either pass it on or be sterile. In one test with mosquitoes in the lab, it took just seven generations for the drive to spread from one in eight insects to the whole lot, leading to a total collapse of the population. There was no Generation 8. That little lab population had gone extinct. Insects aren't the only branch of the animal kingdom where gene drives could be applied. A paper published in the journal Nature in January this year showed that the inheritance of one version of a gene affecting coat colour could be skewed using a CRISPR-based gene drive. It's not 100%, but it's definitely more than half. That's fine if you want to guarantee a nice crop of mice with rather charming mottled grey coats rather than dark brown ones, but there are more useful applications too. 
For example, unwanted invasive rodents such as rats and mice on islands can quickly cause devastation and wipe out local species. Trying to get rid of them with conventional pest control techniques is virtually impossible. But releasing a gene drive that crashes the population might be an effective alternative. Other uses for gene drives might be to simply spread a beneficial or protective gene through a population you actually want to keep around, such as a gene blocking the transmission of a deadly disease, or using genetic engineering to protect endangered species like corals from environmental stresses. There are significant scientific, ecological and ethical concerns around the use of gene drives. And there are also fears about what might happen if the technology was used in a harmful way, for example by deliberately trying to cause crop failures or inherited diseases. And we don't know whether the drives can jump species and cause unintended damage. Coming back to where we started, could this technology be used to render real-life mosquito populations immune to malaria, or even get rid of them altogether? Well, probably yes, but is it a good idea? With the right application of genetic technology, we wouldn't need to eradicate all mosquitoes, only the ones that cause us so much harm. But while it's broadly thought that getting rid of the really nasty ones, such as Anopheles gambii, which transmits malaria across most of sub-Saharan Africa, would probably be just fine, ecologists are currently finding out whether completely obliterating these bugs might affect the local ecosystems, just in case. This is Genetics Unzipped, the Genetic Society podcast. You can find us on Twitter at Genetics Unzip and online at geneticsunzip.com. Please do take a minute to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts from, and it would be great if you could rate and review the show and tell all your friends. Send out a tweet, accost someone in a hallway. It all helps more people discover the show. You've probably noticed that geneticists do love to bang on about Charles Darwin, arguably one of the greatest scientific minds of all time, and the man who's remembered for coming up with the theory of evolution by natural selection, or at least being the first to so completely and coherently publish his ideas about it. One person who had huge admiration for Darwin was his cousin, Francis Galton, who was also a scientist with a keen interest in similar themes of heredity and evolution. Galton is widely regarded as having a brilliantly inventive mind, coming up with innovations such as forensic fingerprinting, weather maps, and my personal favourite, the Gumption Reviver, a portable dripping tap designed to sit over a student's head in lectures and keep him awake. But what really sealed his legacy was his establishment of the field of anthropometrics. That's what we'd probably now call biometrics, which basically means count all the things. Galton was obsessed with measuring people. Not just the easy stuff like height, weight, eye or hair colour, but everything. Strength, breathing capacity, reaction time, hearing and vision, colour perception, judgement of length and intelligence. He was also the originator of the idea of the baby book, measuring and tracking infants from birth to see where they fall in relation to average milestones and markers. It's something that will be familiar to any parents today who have proudly boasted, or secretly worried, that their baby falls in a particular percentile for a certain measurement. 
It was this obsession for measurement that led Galton to the infamous idea for which he's best known and the word that he coined to describe it, eugenics. As a student at Cambridge University, Galton had spotted that the top students also had relatives who had done well there too and was convinced that this success must be down to heredity rather than upbringing. Insert massive eye roll and discussion of privilege here. This belief of the power of nature over nurture was reinforced through his travels in Africa as a young man, where he mused on what he referred to as the mental peculiarities of different races, but what we'd now probably describe as massively racist stereotypes. He even put together a book, Hereditary Genius, published in 1869, in which he wrote long lists of eminent men, judges, poets, scientists, even rowers and wrestlers, to show that excellence ran in families. And obviously, only in men. Oh. Galton started to apply statistics to analyse all his data, dividing populations into groups according to traits. And it's here that things start to really go awry. Focusing on what were considered to be undesirable characteristics, such as weakness, savagery or feeble-mindedness, Galton wondered whether it might be best to simply get rid of the people who fell into those groups, either by persuading or forcing them not to have babies. It was an idea that fell on fertile ground in the uncertain political climate of the early 20th century, both here in Europe and in North America. At the same time as the world was opening up through international travel and commerce, states were enacting eugenic policies targeting certain groups for enforced sterilisation and also holding beautiful baby competitions. No prizes for guessing what a beautiful baby looked like. But the example that stands out the most and leaves the darkest stain on the history of 20th century Europe is the massive programme of eugenic horror carried out by Nazi Germany under Adolf Hitler. Rather than just deciding that certain people shouldn't breed, the Nazis set out to systematically eradicate whole populations. During the Holocaust, some six million Jews were murdered along with millions more deemed undesirable by the Nazis' eugenic standards, including Slavs, Poles, the Roma, the incurably sick, disabled and gay people. And the Nazis aren't the only example of using eugenic ideas and bad race science to inflict genocide. Another case is in Rwanda, where Belgian colonisers use eugenic science to create artificial racial categories, where previously the divisions between Hutu and Tutsi people had just been social. They drew on Galton's biometric techniques such as skull measurement to divide and conquer the population through the early 20th century, ultimately leading to the genocide of up to a million Tutsi people in the mid-90s. Even something that we think of as good from a global public health and women's rights perspective, increasing the availability of contraception, has a whiff of eugenics. Although there is debate about their motivations, language and legacy, early 20th century birth control pioneers like Marie Stopes and Margaret Sanger, the founder of Planned Parenthood, certainly did embrace at least some of the ideas and words of the eugenics movement about who should or shouldn't be having babies, rather than enabling women to control their own personal choices and fertility. On a wider level, 
countries like Britain and the US used financial leverage to encourage poorer countries to control their rapidly growing populations, culminating in an outrageous programme of enforced sterilisation of men in India in the mid-1970s under Indira Gandhi's rule. And there are still forced sterilisations going on in India and other parts of the world today. My sister Helen and I explored the legacy of Galton's eugenic ideas in our BBC Radio 4 series, Did the Victorians Ruin the World? We came to the conclusion that while it's arguable that pretty much everyone in polite, white Victorian society was probably a wee bit racist, even by the standards of the time, Francis Galton was right out there. A lot of his ideas are based on fairly grim racist or sexist assumptions. For example, he would use a secret glove-based device in his pocket to rank passing women as attractive, indifferent or repellent, eventually enabling him to rank the relative hotness of women in different British towns, London having the most hotties, Aberdeen the least, like some kind of gross Victorian lads mag. He was also somewhat into measuring the size of African women's buttocks and breasts, And apparently even his invention of fingerprinting was because he couldn't tell the difference between people who weren't white and wanted to characterise and sort them better. And of course, there's the whole eugenics thing. This dubious legacy has led to some difficult conversations for organisations like University College London, or UCL, which hosted the Francis Galton Laboratory of National Eugenics and the Professorship, or Chair, of Eugenics, endowed by £45,000 from Galton's own will. The lab was renamed the Galton Laboratory of the Department of Human Genetics and Biometry in 1963, but there's an ongoing and heated debate about whether the university should keep honouring the name of a deeply problematic man who described Africans as lazy, palavering savages, or just get rid of it already. It's a problem that also faces the Galton Institute. They're a charity independent of UCL, which was originally founded in 1907 as the Eugenics Education Institute, but is today dedicated to addressing the issues raised by the study of human heredity and completely rejects eugenic theory and practices. But while it is tempting to erase Galton and all his awful ideas forever, the current president, Professor Veronica van Heinegen, suggests that acknowledging the history and properly addressing the social, scientific and political context of eugenics is a powerful way to understand how these abuses of genetic science arise and to stop them from happening again. I fully acknowledge that Galton was a terrible racist, she says in an interview with the Observer newspaper. But he also played an extremely important role in developing the science of genetics, and it's reasonable to honour him by giving his name to institutions like the one I now run. However, this whole debate raises a real problem. How can we redress historical wrongs? Unfortunately, all this historical reflection isn't preventing racist, eugenic arguments springing up in the darker corners of the internet, and increasingly out in the open, fuelled by the misunderstanding and misuse of modern genetic data. By mapping the breadth of human genomes across the world, we can start to understand the true patterns of human genetic diversity and how it might influence health outcomes, such as understanding how specific genetic variants affect whether you should take a particular drug. Ultimately, this kind of research tells us that, yes, there's a lot of complex diversity out there in the world, 
but also that the simplistic pseudoscientific classifications of racial differences exemplified by people like Galton just break down in the face of modern genetic analysis. As geneticist and science writer Adam Rutherford so neatly puts it, humans are horny and mobile, and have been over the many tens of thousands of years of our evolution and migration across the planet. We all share the same genome, the six billion letter recipe book that makes a human being, with at least 99.9% similarity between any two people. And we all deserve the same dignity and respect. The one irony in all of this is that despite his own self-professed genius, Galton himself died childless. Yet the unwelcome return of racist eugenic ideology shows that his ideas continue to spawn dark thoughts and actions. History repeats itself, and we should be very careful to listen. For more information about this podcast, including show notes, transcripts, links, references, music credits and everything else, head over to geneticsunzip.com and you can find us on Twitter at geneticsunzip. We're taking a quick summer break and we'll be back on the 12th of September with a fresh episode. In the meantime, we'll be bringing you some of our favourite bits over the year and you can always go back and catch up on episodes you've missed by visiting geneticsunzipped.com, searching Apple Podcasts or Spotify for Genetics Unzipped or by subscribing through your favourite podcast app. Please do take a minute to fill in our listener survey. That's at geneticsunzipped.com survey and be in with a chance to win a signed copy of my book, Herding Hemingway's Cats. Genetics Unzipped is written and presented by me, Kat Arney, and is produced by First Create the Media for the Genetic Society, one of the oldest learned societies in the world dedicated to supporting and promoting the research, teaching and application of genetics. You can find out more and apply to join at genetics.org.uk. Our theme music was composed by Dan Pollard and the logo was designed by James Mayle. Production was by Hannah Varrell. Thanks for listening and until next time, goodbye. <laughs>